At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. All right, this morning, if you would, take out your Bible or electronic device and uh, turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8 today. Doesn't the carpet look good in here? That looks really, really good. Yeah, let's give it for the carpet. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time coming. I know I made the first announcement about the carpet coming like way back in, I think it was May, and everyone's been like, hey, when's the carpet coming? I'm like, eh, well, supply chain, I don't know. But it's finally, finally here, and I know we've had uh, a crew of workers that have been diligently um, working and, and helping uh, get this installed quickly. And so thank you for those of you that showed up yesterday um, to help take out the, the, um, the chairs or put the chairs back in so that we could worship this morning. Um, yeah, and also thank you for um, just the, the prayers uh, Sarah and I had a chance last week to get away. It is uh, good to be back, and uh, it's good to see the snow is coming in here. And so welcome winter, right? It, it, so it begins, the dark ages begin for the next four months or so. But you know what? Uh, as you're turning to Romans chapter 8, I wanted to, to tell you about uh, a time in my life when uh, many, many years ago when I was young. It was my least favorite part of the year. It was the, the week of summer that we have. You know the week of summer we have every summer? You know the time that it finally gets really, really hot and it's like 90, 90 degrees and it's 100% humidity and you go outside and you feel like you've just walked into a sauna. You guys remember that? You know that week that we get? That was always the, like, the worst week of my life because I hate being hot and humid. I just can't stay. I'll, I'll take the cold, but you put heat and humidity together and I'm out. And as a kid, I remember always my mom, we'd wake up in the morning and the mom would be like, okay, go outside and don't come back in until dinner time." So for that, that week, it was always the week of suffering where you're like, I can't breathe. I'm sure I've got asthma and I'm sure I'm going to die. But I'll never forget that one summer, our neighbors next door, they got a pool. And I thought to myself, man, this is going to be so awesome. This is my hope of salvation because now they've got a pool and we can swim in the pool. Well, and they were very gracious to us. And so during that, that week of suffering, uh, they, they only had one rule for us, that we could never use the pool when they weren't home. And so we could use the pool or ask to use the pool when they were home. So this is how I spent that week of, of, of the summer while suffering in the heat. I was always on the fence. Right, with, it was a big, tall, like wooden privacy fence with the little slats in it, you know, one you could put your foot on. And so I was on the fence, peering over like all day long in the present suffering, looking and waiting, hoping that they would get home from work so that we can get into the pool. You guys can kind of get that sense in your mind, young kid up on the thing, just straining with all of his might, hoping and waiting that, that the neighbors would come so that we could go into the pool and find some temporary satisfaction from the heat and the oppression. And I tell you that story because I believe that that is the posture that each one of us take every day of our life. As we're walking through the challenges of our day. Each one of us are walking through deep challenges. 
Whether we're suffering from death and disease or because of just difficulties in life, each one of us are walking through seasons of suffering. Life is hard. You don't have to live long until you know that life is hard. And how do we respond to our suffering? Well, our sufferings are a reminder that we are in need of salvation, that we're in need of help. And so what do we do is we climb up on a fence And with all of our might, we're peering over and we're seeing an object of hope. We're seeing an object of salvation. Something that will satisfy us is what we're peering for. But the problem is, is that we're not all peering and waiting for the same thing. Right? As as great as that pool was, as great as the, the suffering would be ended for a moment... That's the best the pool could do. The the pool was never a self-sustaining, self-satisfying for an extended period of time. It was a moment of, 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 of joy, a moment of break. And I think today the challenge is that each one of us are peering, waiting for something. And the problem is we're placing our hope in the wrong things. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I know I need peace in my life. And so if I just can have a better job, if I get that promotion at work, or if I can just get a job, then I'll finally be at peace. Or maybe you're like, if I can get the bigger house, then maybe I'll finally be at peace. Or maybe if I can finally get into a relationship, I just need a relationship. God, would you give me a relationship? Because as soon as I have that, I know I'll just be happy. That's when I'll be happy. And the problem is, is that we're placing our hope and to trust into things that will never, ever really satisfy. And so today, as we come to the scripture, as we come to Romans chapter 8, as we continue our series, I want us to test the object of our hope. This is the question that is before you. This is the question before us as we come to the text. Is where is my hope? So we're continuing our series looking at Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 to many theologians, many pastors, and many followers of Christ uh, has been, been termed one of the greatest chapters of all Scripture. As in it, we see the benefits and the beauty of being a follower of Christ. When we come to place our faith and trust in the work of Christ, what happens is there's an amazing amount of things that that go on. No longer are we enemies with God, but we are friends with God and we have the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And this Holy Spirit that lives inside of us moves us towards obedience. It gives us the power to actually obey God's commands. And in Romans chapter 8 is unfolding of all of the beauties and all of the benefits and all the power that is, that is uh, available to those that are in Christ. And so it's a beautiful chapter. Today as we, we look at chapter 8, one of the things that we're going to take a look at is this idea of hope. For central to the Christian life is a deep understanding of of hope. And biblical hope is altogether a different concept than worldly hope. See, there are lots of people uh, understand and experience worldly hope, right? Let me give you an example. I, I hope that the Lions will win the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, right? That kind of worldly hope is a hope that is uncertain. It's a, it's a hope that is fleeting. It's a hope that disappoints because it's unsure. 
And every, every season I begin the, the Lions season, and I'm like, I'm full of hope. I'm like, man, this is the year. This is the year they're going to get to the Super Bowl. This is it. And then by week two, all hope is gone. <laughs> you guys feel my pain? Right, when, the, when we hope in the wrong things, it always disappoints. And so biblical hope is very, very different. Biblical hope is not an uncertainty, but biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something that is good in the future. It is a confidence and assurance of what is hoped for. So it's completely different. It is a sure thing. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. And one of the gifts that the Spirit gives us is hope. It's a, it's a sense of, of hope that we can trust in what Jesus and God have promised will come in the future, become our assurance. In Christ, then, we are an expectant people. In Christ, we are a sure people. In Christ, we are a certain people. In Christ, we are confident people. In Christ, we are resolved people. We're not just hopeful people, but we are hope-filled people. We have a confident assurance of what is promised to come will come, and it changes how we live in the day-to-day. -day. You know, long before the cross became the prominent symbol for Christianity, the anchor was the symbol for Christianity. So if you were to go back and see like first century Christian uh, tombstones or tombs, many times instead of a cross, you would see the image of an a anchor inside the um, the tombstone. For many, many years, it was used as the, as the symbol, the Christian symbol, because it symbolized hope. And this is how it, it came about, right? When you think about a ship, a ship places all of its hope in the anchor, right? The anchor is what grounds it, right? So it doesn't matter if, if the winds come and the storms come, the ship itself may be tossed to and fro by the waves. It may go up and it may go down with the tide. It may do all of those things. The wind and the rain may have all that stuff on top of it. But guess what? That boat is not going anywhere if it's got a sure anchor. And in much the same way, in exactly the same way, for those of us that find our anchor or find our hope in Christ alone, our ship or our life is tethered to that anchor, which is assured. And though life comes, though the winds come and we get feel like we're blown to and fro, life is up and life is down and life is easy, life is hard, we're not moved because our anchor is a assured thing. So what then is the hope of the believer? Well, I think, let's look in verse 18 of chapter 8. And we see our hope. For Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Another way of putting that, which is our big idea today, is that our present sufferings will give way to future glory. So Paul, what Paul is doing is he's comparing our future hope in Jesus with our current and present reality. He says the present reality that we experience is pain, suffering, and discomfort. And so when we consider our sufferings of the present time, they're not worth the glory that is to come. 
They're not worth what God has set aside for us. So in the midst of these sufferings, we can find our hope in the future because these are just temporary. And he says there is no comparison. I want to make a side note here. And it's not in the text, but the truth is here as well. I want us to also understand that not only is our future glory in no comparison to our, our, our present sufferings are in no comparison to our future glory. I want us to also say and understand that our future glory is better than any present desired pleasure. Did you get that? Whatever present uh, pleasure that's desired of you or anyone else, because we live in a world right now that says pursue pleasure, find pleasure, and then you will be happy. Then you'll have significance. You'll, be, you'll have a sense of security. You'll have everything you need if you are just happy. The problem with that is that we have this world now that is chasing after pleasure and it's not fulfilling them and people are ending up empty and they're feeling like something is still missing. And so the world says, go find more pleasure. And so they're chasing after pleasure. And I want you to understand the future glory that is to come is in no comparison to your present pleasure. It's in no comparison to your present suffering. That what is to come is far greater for those that are in Christ. You see, Paul is a man who understands suffering. Paul, because of his faith in Christ, endured a lot of hardships. We know from his own testimony that he knows what it was like to starve. He knows what it was like to be tormented, to be threatened, to be chased, to be mocked, to be unjustly sentenced. He was constantly in prison and literally put into chains. He was nearly beaten to death. He was shipwrecked. He was whipped to the point that he bore the marks of Christ. Paul's idea of hope that he's talking about here wasn't some hypothetical, mystical roll of the dice. He wasn't saying, I'm enduring all this because I hope maybe that God was enough to save me. No, he was assured that his, his eternity was secure. He was assured of his place with God in the future. And he was assured that the future and glories that he waited for were a sure thing so that he could endure anything because he knew that it was greater. So we know we don't live long in life until we start, begin experiencing suffering. Sometimes our suffering that we experience is self-inflicted. Sometimes we make dumb choices and, and we have the repercussions of those things. But sometimes, just as a result of this broken world that we live in, pain becomes a reality. Suffering becomes a part of it. We're surrounded every single day by brokenness and disunity, death and disease. And many of those times, those difficulties that we have cause us to question the goodness of God. We wonder, is why are we suffering? Many times the answer that we suffer is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world where our suffering reminds us that we are in need of rescue. Hear this. Your suffering is a reminder that you are in need of rescue, that you are not self-sufficient. The world does not revolve around you. You are in desperate need that you cannot even fix your own problems, nor can you fix yourself. So the world, the suffering reminds us that we are in need of rescue. 
Church, we need to take this to heart. Just as I have been seeking the Lord's face and trying to understand how God would have me lead our church and navigate these difficult days. I think we need to hear this and be prepared for what is to come. The Bible tells us clearly, as we get closer to the Lord's return, suffering is going to become more of a reality. Now, I'm not prognosticating the future or anything like that, but the reality is every day that we get closer to the Lord's return, suffering is going to increase. It's going to increase in its frequency and it's going to increase in its severity and it's going to come to the church. The church is going to suffer. If you signed up to be a follower of Jesus and think it's supposed to be a cakewalk from here until the time that Jesus comes back, you're misguided, you're misinformed, and you've misbelieved the gospel. So church, we need to prepare. Prepare for suffering. Suffering comes in many different ways and many different forms. And what Paul is saying is we're all going to have our own kinds of suffering. You'll have your list of suffering and I'll have my list of suffering. But he says, don't worry about the suffering. The suffering is not the point. You're going to go through suffering. The point is, where are your eyes fixed as you walk through the suffering? Typically, our response to suffering is to avoid it or seek to fix it. But for the believer, as we walk through suffering, we can walk through suffering without being moved. We can walk through suffering without losing heart. We can walk through suffering without losing hope. Because suffering gives the believer a time to exercise our hope. When the world is swirling all around us and we feel like we're getting crashed against the rocks and we feel overwhelmed... That gives us the opportunity to exercise our hope, knowing that our present sufferings are in no way comparison to our future glory. That this is but a time. So what's the prize? What is out there that we're hoping in and hoping for? It's not just your salvation. You didn't just come to faith in Jesus so that you have the promise of a place called heaven. That's what many people do. They're like, I just, I just want to be, I want to make sure that in the end I'm, I'm good. I've got a good place to go. But you're missing the mark. That, that is true. Salvation is a, a guarantee of heaven, but salvation is much greater. It is access to God. What's at the end? God. God himself. The promises and the whole, what we hope for is that we will be with Christ. The promise is that we will be like Christ We will see Christ. We will be living with God. We will enjoy God. We'll be sustained by God. We will be filled by God. And for eternity, we will worship God. This is the incomparable joy that is in the future that we are hoping for. And you know who's there? God. And if you're hoping for something else, then you're missing the whole point. If Christ is not enough, then you don't know who Christ really is. I mean, imagine this just, just for imagine this just for a moment. Okay, you've got the creator of the universe who is infinite in power, who is glorious and majestic, who is pure, who is spotless, and who is all this, and this God of the universe knows you and wants you to know him as well. 
that is greater than anything. Like many of us, we live for the approval of our fathers. We just want to hear our, our earthly fathers say, hey, you're doing a good job. You know how, that, how good that feels when your employer says you're doing a good job and all that other thing? Imagine the creator of the universe coming to you and saying, I am pleased with you and I love you. I love everything about you and you can crawl up in my lap. You can be with me. You can do all of that. This is the promise of what is to come. And some people are like, I don't want that. I just want a better job. I just want a different spouse. I want a faster car. I want an extra week of vacation. They're like, then that's enough. Really? Man, we're missing. I, I, I just, this blows my mind that people settle for less than God himself, that God himself is the reward, that God himself is enough. He is the prize. This is our hope, but our current reality is suffering. And what we're gonna see next is not only do, do we suffer, but creation suffers. And as we watch creation suffer, it gives us an example of how we are to hope for full restoration which is the first truth I want us to see. The creation groans in hope for its full restoration. Look at what Paul writes in verse 19. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This image of creation waiting eagerly and longing for something is the imagery of the boy on the fence. Standing there with neck long, looking and hoping and waiting, knowing that they're in need of salvation, knowing they're in need of rescue, knowing that they're in need of redemption. History and all creation is yawning and learning and yeaning in to try and wait for this great restoration. What are they longing for? The revealing of the sons of God. What creation is longing for and is waiting is for, for Jesus to come back and those that are his children become the sons of God. For when creation sees that, creation knows that they're going to be restored next. For creation, because of the fall, was subject to futility. It wasn't willingly, but it was subject to it as a result of the fall. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about the cycle of nature? Like when you think about a tree, especially this time of year, trees that are losing their leaves. And what happens? Well, the tree begins as a seed, right? That seed grows up into a tree. That tree begins to produce leaves and the leaves fall every year. And then uh, they come back in the spring and then they go in the fall. And eventually what happens to that tree? That tree dies. And so this tree is, is stuck in this cycle that's not moving anywhere. It's the futility of nature because the cycle of nature is continuing on day in and day out, but it's not going anywhere. And this is the futility that it experiences it. Creation desires to be set free from this bondage of corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Look what he says in verse 22. Some vivid imagery. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
Like the chains, the pains of childbirth, as they continue on, they, they grow louder and they become more frequent. Creation groaning is a super powerful image because Paul is drawing attention to that of, of, of childbirth. And we know that if you've ever experienced childbirth, you've ever witnessed childbirth, it is a terrifying thing. I mean, it's terrifying, right? I don't understand it, but I do understand this about it. That as, as, as labor begins and as it gets closer and closer to the child being born, what happens is pain increases and pain becomes more severe and it becomes more frequent. And the poor woman that goes through this process is in deep, deep pain, but they do it because they know that once that childbirth begins, that there's a hope at the end, that all of that pain leads to new life. And that makes all of that pain worthwhile for the new life. Paul is saying this is exactly what nature is going through. Nature knows that there's something wrong. Nature knows that there are problems. There's devastation. There's fires. There's avalanches. There's tornadoes. There's uh, hurricanes. There's tsunamis. There's all of these things. And as time goes on, nature knows that it's going to become more and more in need of salvation because it's beyond its own control. We look to creation and we see other signs of groaning. Someone told me uh, a couple weeks ago that that creation is audibly groaning. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, hey, you just gotta check out, check this out. Go, go look uh, at the NASA website and, and figure this out about this black hole. And sure enough, I was amazed at what I found. And this is what I found. In 2002, astronomers were observing some bizarre ripples rushing through the gases of Perseus, the Perseus galaxy. I, I'm not an astronomer, but it's far, far away. Like, thousands of light years away, there's like this gal galaxy that exists. And what's happening is emitting from a black hole that's at the center of this galaxy is emitting some waves and it's waves of gases. And what's taking place is the astronomers were looking at this and they're like, oh my goodness, it's making waves. Those waves are actually sound waves. So the mixing of gases that's happening millions of light years away or billion, I don't know, it's a far away, okay? It is emitting these, these sounds. And so what they did is they tried to take some instruments, some musical instruments, to figure out if they could identify what the sound that was making. And so they took the sounds of a piano, the, two, the, the notes on a piano, and they started going like this and seeing the waves and seeing if they could match up the waves that were coming out of this black hole to an actual sound. And guess what they found out? That the note that is coming out of this black hole is a B-flat. Now, if you know anything about me, I don't know anything about music, really. But I do know this. If you go to a piano and you go to the very, very center and you press the, the white key, that's middle C. Okay? So B flat is an eighth of an octave or two eighths of an octave uh, down from that. Okay? So it's to the left. That's that black one that's right next to middle C. Right? So it's, it's an eighth of an octave to two eighths of an octave difference than middle C. And so as they, these astronomers are now using these musical instruments to, to chart the sound waves that are coming out of this black hole. This is what they found out, that the sound coming from the black hole is 57 octaves lower than middle C. Not impressed? Like the average piano has seven octaves, right? This is 57 octaves lower or 50 octaves lower than the lowest note on the piano. You know what's even more amazing about this is that the frequency is one million times deeper than the known limits of human hearing. Still not impressed? 
NASA has said that this B-flat sound that is coming from the deepest parts of space is the deepest note ever emitted by anything in the universe. So from the moment of creation until now, until Jesus comes back, space has been groaning with a deep, deep groaning, knowing and, and telling into all history, into all space and all time that there is a problem. And all creation is pointing to Jesus. So we have this inanimate creation groaning to be set free from its corruption. We see it. In our own lives, the bloody horrors of floods and hurricanes and droughts and tornadoes and avalanches and earthquakes. But now there's coming a time when all of this will be set free. When God's work of redemption is done and every son and daughter joins his family through faith. There's a time that is coming. Creation desires it. The world desires, all creation desires to be destroyed or to be restored, not destroyed. Even in the book of Revelation, we see in chapter, chapter 21, verse five, it says, and he is seated on the throne, says, behold, I am making all things new. The Revelation chapter 21 is a beautiful picture into heaven and what heaven looks like, where everything is at peace, where nature is at peace, where there's a stream that, that flows through the city of God that's at peace where there's a tree at the center of the city that brings light to all things, and it, it's at peace. So in the end, Jesus is bringing peace to all of that, and, and creation waits for the sons of God to be revealed. Jesus started this process of making all things new when he came the first time, and he will fix it and finally end it when he returns again. So not only is nature groaning in need of redemption. We see second, God's people groan in hope for a full redemption. Look with me in verse 23. He says, not only, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So those of us that have already made Jesus our Lord and Savior, who are trusted in him, we have this beautiful benefit of having an already reality and part of it that's not yet. And we see this being parsed out in, in this verse. There's parts of our salvation that are, are currently experienced, and there's parts of the benefits of our salvation that we have to wait for. And Paul breaks this down. He says, we've already experienced uh, parts of our salvation in the fact that for in this hope we were saved. So the moment that we come to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are saved. What does that mean? That means that we will never be any more forgiven than we are right now. We will never be any more justified than we are right now. So right now we are currently and presently secured in our salvation that is found in Christ. So if we are in Christ, then we know the hope of our faith. We feel that at the moment of salvation. We feel the peace of God that rests on us. When we walk through the waters of baptism, we feel the presence of God and the, the peace that's there. 
And we experience this first fruits of the Spirit. So that's something we experience at the moment of salvation. We have this hope that we are saved. But then there's an aspect of our hope that is still yet to come. We haven't fully experienced all that we are in Christ and in our present bodies. In essence, what Paul is saying is, is we groan inwardly. I don't know about you, but as I get a little bit older, my body groans a little bit more. Right, like rolling out of the bed in the morning, there's like this, ugh. Or you're sitting, in, sitting down eating dinner for a while and then you stand up, ugh, ugh. Right, our bodies are reminders that we're on this road towards death. And the older we get, the more we groan because our bodies hurt, they ache, they get tired. And our bodies groan because our bodies are constant reminders that we are in need of salvation. We are in need of rescue. And so as our bodies groan for something, what are we groaning for? We are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. You see, yes, we do have immediate access to God, but it's not full access to God because of we still have these sinful bodies and we still live on this world and on this planet. But when, we, when Jesus comes, we will be with God. We will be able to experience the full adoption of calling God our Father, that we will be able to come into his presence and though he fully knows us, we will be able to fully know him in a real tangible way. It's this desire to be known and to be with our Father that causes many of us to try and replace our yearnings in our heart for God, our Heavenly Father, for earthly things. And if we live our lives focused on the temporal, if we believe that all of this stuff that's here is going to give us satisfaction, and that's the whole way we live, then when we finally get those things, we're going to be disappointed. But what are we hoping for? What are we waiting for? We're waiting for our adoptions as sons and we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And you're like, well, that's not that big of a deal. This is a huge deal. I mean, when you think about your body, our, my body itself has been so full of sin. Like my body is broken. I, things hurt. Like I wake up every morning and things hurt. I go to bed at night and things hurt. I'm, my mind is beginning to be forgetful. I, I work a full day and I get tired and I have to go to rest. And, and when I work, my stomach gets hungry and I need food. And all of these things that I experience in this body are constant reminders that I need Jesus. Ever thought about that? Right, your hunger pains. Have you ever thought that your hunger pains are a sign from God that you need him? Because where does that food come from? Everything we have comes from God. Our rest comes from God. And guess what things go away when we go to heaven? You won't need to sleep. You won't hunger. You won't thirst. So all the things that we have in life, that we live our lives around trying to, you know, we live so much of our lives trying to plan our meals and to try to plan this work and try to plan rest and try to plan recreation and all this other stuff, like all those things go away in heaven because all that's there is God himself. And so they're constant reminders now that what we need is him. So our bodies are waiting to be redeemed. In hope, we are saved and in hope we live because we live now in the land of the dying. We live now in a world where we understand and have to believe this is not as good as it gets. 
Don't be fooled. Don't give yourself over to believing that this life is as good as it gets. This is bad. This is horrible. And even the best things that this life has to offer pale in comparison to the future glory that is to come. So as we climb that fence, the Christian posture should be to climb the fence with their heads peeking over, looking squarely at Jesus and the hope that is found in him alone. And if we're looking at anything else, it's always going to disappoint And here's the beautiful thing about this posture. When we climb up on the fence and peer over with our necks and Jesus is our goal, Jesus is our hope, guess what happens to everything else? Everything falls by the wayside. Depression goes away. Anxiety goes away. Fear goes away. Failures go away. Why? Because our eyes are focused on what's ahead. We know all of this stuff is happening and our, our hope is in something that is secured in the future, not something that's temporary, that might change tomorrow. But God is secure, so it gives us a hope. It gives us a future. It gives us a sense to be grounded in this life, in this time. So let me ask you this question. What are you waiting on today? What are you waiting on the edge of your seat for? If it's anything other than Christ, you're missing out and you will be disappointed. Let me share with you this one verse that talks about the blessedness of Jesus Christ and why Jesus himself is our hope. First Peter chapter one, verse three says this. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. What he's he's saying here is that, that Jesus has done all of the work that Jesus is our sense of security. Jesus is our sense of significance. Jesus is our source of salvation. Jesus is everything that we need. And you're like, why is Jesus so important? Because Jesus did the work that we could not. You see, yes, God is holy. And yes, God is just and God is perfect. But guess what? You and I are sinful. And sinful man cannot have a relationship with holy God. Sin has to be punished. So in essence, those that are sinful, you and I are actually enemies of God and we are in need of salvation. And how did God plan to save us? By sending his own son, Jesus, who took on the form of a a man, took on human flesh and also maintained his deity at the same time, came to this earth and lived a perfect life. He never disobeyed, always followed the father in every every single step of his life. And so in every way that you and I could not be obedient, he was obedient. But then Jesus also came with the purpose to be the sacrifice. See, sin has to be punished. In order for God to be just, sin had to be punished. And so why not punish sin through the pure spotless sacrifice of Jesus? And so Jesus willingly went to a cross. And the Bible tells us that on the cross, all of the sin of the world was placed on him. All the penalty for all that. All of your sin, all of my sin was placed on, on Jesus. And Jesus endured the wrath of God. And then Jesus died. 
And God saw Jesus' sacrifice as enough so that he raised him from the dead. And by doing that, provided forgiveness of sin and put to, death, put to death the consequences of death for those that will believe in Jesus. That's, that's the kicker. There are so many people in the world today, they understand what Jesus has done, but they've never actually come to a place of personally trusting in him themselves. So if you're here today and you have never come to the place of trusting in Jesus, then that's your response today, right? You have this beautiful opportunity for hope that stands right before you. And all you must do is receive it through faith. Say, Lord, I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Now come and take control of my life. And you do that and the, everything changes. Your sins are forgiven. You now have peace with God and now you have a hope and a future but for many of us here today, the challenge of this text for us is we already have the, the resurrected life. We already have all of that. But somewhere along the way, we've making, made exchanges with our hope. We've taken Jesus off as the object of our hope and placed other things there. And we're walking through difficult seasons. We're walking through suffering and we're hoping in something else than God himself. If you're here today and that's where you're at, then I encourage you, like, just confess that before the Lord. Say, Lord, Lord, I, I know you're supposed to be my hope and I know, I know, I know that there is a future out there that is much greater than what I'm experiencing right now. So take the things that I hope for and dismantle them and make my only hope you. Because Jesus is enough. Let's pray together. Father. We thank you for your word today. We thank you for the promise, the secured promise of our future hope. That there's nothing that could come between the promises that you have for those of us that know you and are in you. And Father, we know you understand our present sufferings. You understand our present desires to be happy and to have peace and to have joy and all of that stuff. And Father, we confess that there are times in our life where Christ hasn't been enough. Father, forgive us. Reveal to us now in these moments the places that we've said, I want Christ and something else. If there's anything in that, Father, I pray that you would remove it, dismantle it from our lives right now so that Christ may be enough, that he may be our only hope. Father, right now, I know that there are people who are walking through deep moments of suffering and they're wondering where you are. They're wondering if you still care. Father, remind them today that you do that these present sufferings cannot compare to the future glory. Help us, God, to no longer live with the mindset of the temporary, but Father, gaze our eyes on the eternal. Help us to be constantly, eternally focused, knowing that in the end you win, in the end there is peace, in the end there is rest, in the end there is you. And may that be enough. Father, as we sing this song, 
cement this truth into our hearts and help us through the power of your spirit to be resolved to live in hope, to no longer be dismayed by this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.